We're in Romans. We're finishing what we're calling Romans Part 2, and next week it's the exciting conclusion of the book of Romans. For the rest of the summer, it'll be Romans Part 3. You can see we got really creative as we uh, kind of branded the series, Romans Part 1, Part 2, Part 3. So Part 3 is going to be made up of chapters 12 through 16, and there really is a transition in the book, because in Romans chapters 12 through 16, you have very specific applications of how we live out this gospel that we've been studying for the rest of us. So next week, he'll start off, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And so what Paul is going to say now is, looking back on this stuff that we've been studying for 11 chapters, this great gospel we have in Jesus, this good news, what does that look like in everyday life? And he's going to work that out, uh, how we relate to each other, how we relate to government, how we get along with difficult people, um, all of those details of our everyday life. So we're looking forward to that transition next week. Uh, This week, we're finishing part two. Uh, In chapter 11, it'll be chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. So we'll be looking at the very end of chapter 11. We're calling it Riches for the World. Riches for the World. If you were with us last week, he used the imagery of an olive tree. And he said, what God is doing is he's growing this beautiful olive tree that has this great fruit for the world. We talked about there how other places in the scripture, God says he's making a vine, right? So he's producing olives to feed us and that we can eat and have olive oil, right? That was a very central crop in the first century. And then he talks about grapes, where you can eat the grapes, or you can make wine, or you can have all these things that grows out of that. So he's talking about these different images that are garden images. And you remember, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the story of the Bible is that God gave us these riches we call paradise. He set us up in paradise. And what did we do? We threw it all away. We said, God, I'd rather have paradise, but not have you. I'm rejecting you, but I'm taking your stuff. And that is what has caused everything that's broken in the world. So the world we live in now is a world where we can kind of see this hazy shadow of paradise, right? We can kind of see this dim reflection of what paradise should be, the the echoes of how it could be. But we know that's not what we actually live in. We live in brokenness. And so God, again and again, throughout the Bible is saying, okay, I'm I'm going to replant paradise. I'm going to reseed Eden. We're, we're going to do this all over again. And so Paul's picking up that imagery here saying that he's giving riches to the world. And we get to be a part of that. So, so let's look at it in chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, Gentiles means the non-Israelites, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election or choosing, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That's key verse. I'm going to read it again. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor 
or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. I'm going to ask that God would teach us this morning. This is difficult stuff. Uh, arguably, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the hardest part of Romans. And this is kind of the wrap-up of that section. So he's kind of pulling together all these difficult pieces. We're going to try to summarize it. I've been praying this week that the Lord would enable me to kind of uh, broadcast teach the main stuff here, right? And so we're going to ask for the Spirit's help now and ask for him to, to lead us. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning from this section. There's some difficult things here. We pray that you would help us to see exactly what you want us to see this morning. Lord, I know all of us are coming in this morning with different discouragements and, and different disappointments, and, and we need your grace. We need your Spirit to help us, and so we pray that you would be here with us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin unfolding the text, uh, the first area that I want to focus on as we think about this riches that God is giving to the world is the riches of the drama itself. There's a drama or a story, if you will, that God is unfolding. And admittedly, we don't always like the way he's telling his story, right? Sometimes we want to say, no, God, let me, let me take over the story and retell it where I'm the star and nothing bad ever happens to me, right? There's, there's some ways that we would like to adjust the story to make the drama more palatable, more acceptable to us. But this is, this is the drama he's telling. This is the story. God gets to write the drama and we are to play our part in the drama. And so he starts off with this concept in verse 25, which I'll read again. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. And so he's coming to the non-Jews who might be tempted at this point in history, in the first century, there were large numbers of non-Israelites responding to the Jewish Messiah and coming to have faith in Jesus. So large numbers of the people of God were people from this non-Jewish background. And Paul's saying, hold on, don't become arrogant, right? He's been saying this, we saw this earlier in chapter 11 and before and 10 and 9. He was saying, don't think that now God hates Jews and likes Greeks, Right? Don't start to think, oh, well, God likes white people now, or God likes brown people now, or God likes yellow people now, or God likes red, you know. Don't start to think it's, it's this people that are God's favorites. God is saying, no, I've always loved all people. I've created all people in my image. And by faith in Christ, we can be God's people. And so just as the Jews fell into this pride and thought, we're special and we're better than everybody else, all of us are susceptible to that as well. Any of us can do that. Not just racially, right? You can do that by your job. You, you could be a soldier and think, well, I'm just better than other people, right? I've given my life to be a soldier. None of you would think that. But, or maybe you're a teacher, right? You're just slogging it out, teaching, and man, that's hard work. And you're like, I'm just better than other people because I'm a teacher and I make all these sacrifices, right? So we can all fall into this. We can all fall into thinking, I am somehow God's special anointed people because of the sacrifices I've made. And he's saying, no. You're all disobedient. You've become my people by grace, by mercy. So lest you become wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brother. So a mystery is a kind of secret thing that God reveals. In the first century, there were hundreds of mystery cults. So these were secret societies. And what this religion or cult revolved around was secret knowledge and secret stories and secret rituals, secret handshakes, if you will. And you could be a part of the inside group by joining. You had to know somebody to get in, right? And then you were part of the secret, the mystery, 
You knew it. But the weird thing about the first century mystery cults was the mystery was all about you being special because other people couldn't know it, right? You see that? In Christianity, Paul turns that upside down and he says, in Christianity, the mystery is Jesus is for everybody and you can all come in, right? And so Christianity broke the rules of all the mystery cults by inviting everyone in and saying, you don't have to be a secret insider. Anyone can come in to this group. And so here's this mystery. And he says, specifically, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. Now now he's giving like details of what's unfolding in the drama. This scene of the drama, right? This act of the drama. What's happening here? A partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, come in. So he's saying, in time, God says, I'm going to save the whole world. How am I going to save the whole world? I'm going to work with this one tribe. Who's the tribe? The tribe is Israel. He starts working with Israel. Israel rejects him. He disciplines them. Then he restores them to the land. Then he sends Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel was supposed to be. And he's now saving the world through Israel, through more specifically Jesus. But in the first century, most of the Israelites were not believing. And that led to lots of non-Israelites believing and coming into the people of God. And so... He used the olive tree analogy last week. He said, now this olive tree of God has all these wild shoots that weren't Israelites being grafted into the tree. So we've got this one multi-ethnic people of God of which we are an example. We come from all these different tribes and islands and countries and nations, and we believe in Jesus, and so we're one in Christ. And he's saying that reality is a partial hardening of Israel. Remember earlier he said hardening is where he gives us over to our own desires, right? Hardening is giving us over to the glory of our own heart, letting us be strong in ourselves and do our own thing. Talked about that in Romans chapter 1, again in Romans chapter 9. So saying this hardening is taking place, Israel is is falling in their own pride. And in their fall, more non-Israelites like us are coming into the faith. And that's the story that he's telling right now, but it's not the end of the story. Look at the next verse. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, saying this is actually going to lead in time to more of Israel being saved. Now, all Israel commentators, you know, this is difficult stuff. Everybody disagrees on this. So I'm going to give you kind of how I normally do. Here's the middle way, I think, of what this means. Um, One way you could take it is uh, all Israel means all believing Israel will be saved. So that that seems like almost it's not worth saying, right? I mean, it does mean that, but it's got to mean more than that. Because if he's saying all believing Israel is going to be saved, why wouldn't he just say, in this way, all believers are saved? He's saying something about the bulk of Israel. The other extreme would be saying all, every last Israelite will be saved just for being an Israelite. But that's never been the way that God has dealt with his people. He's always had kind of this division among his people. We see it in the church today. We see it in Israel in the Old Testament, where there are people that were a part of the larger social group that actually hated God, didn't really love him, and weren't really his. And so they didn't really belong to him, and they weren't really saved. And so I think that continues, and here he's saying all, like the bulk. He's just saying, for now, most of Israel's not saved. There's going to be this future time when most of Israel does respond to the gospel. So we're saying that there's this future to come. Most commentators believe it's still this kind of weird thing that's going to happen in the future. Some people believe it's a snowball effect that's already starting now. More and more and more being saved. And so he's saying there's this back and forth. We saw it last week also where Israel's pride led to others believing. 
And then he says, watch out. We saw this last week. Watch out. Our pride then might lead to our fall and, and then more of Israel's believing. He's saying this is the drama he's telling. And it's leading to more and more people being saved. So go back and read chapter 11. He's talked about some of this already. And so until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. So when all that God is saving from all the nations and peoples and ethnic groups, when, when we're all in, then more of Israel will be saved. And he says, in this way, it's going to happen. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. What does that mean? If, if you don't really, are not familiar with the Old Testament, Zion is, is the mountain where Jerusalem was. So Zion is just kind of like code word for God's people, the capital of Israel. And then Jacob, Israel's other name, right? So he's just talking in general terms about God's people, his Old Testament people. So the deliverer will come from Zion, from God's Old Testament people. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, Israel, God's Old Testament people. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There he's quoting Jeremiah 31, which is picked up in Hebrews chapter 8, which is the new covenant. He's saying, this is how they'll be saved. How will they be saved? If you're a, a hyper-dispensationalist, you might be tempted to say they're saved because they're Israel. And God just saves them for their Israelness, right? But again, be careful. No, he says, this is how they're saved. A deliverer will come and take away their sins. So they're not saved and we're not saved by who we are. We're saved by a deliverer who comes and takes away our sins. Do you see that? It's a really crucial point that he's reiterating. It's what he's been saying throughout the book of Romans, but he's saying it one more time in case we forget. We start to think, I'm saved by Jesus, but you know what? Really, I'm a pretty great guy. So maybe I'm saved by being a great guy. So, no, you're saved by this one who takes away your sins. In the first century, Rome was in charge. I have a picture here of a Roman soldier. I tried to find a really tough, gritty-looking Roman soldier, right? Like a powerful warrior, the kind of warrior that all of us dudes want to be. And the Jews were looking for an even more powerful Jewish warrior who could kick this guy's butt, right? That's the kind of savior they were looking for. They were looking for someone who would validate their Jewishness, who would show that Jews really are better than all of us dirty Gentiles and that they really are the superior race and they're stronger and faster and more powerful and in hand-to-hand -hand combat, he could take this guy down. That, that's the kind of leader that they were looking for. What kind of leader did we get in Jesus? Well, I would argue that Jesus was strong because we're told he was a carpenter. Really, in first century parlance, that would have been a stonecutter, right? So he was a mason, basically. This dude was probably pretty strong. But how did he fight? What kind of warrior was he? How, how did the drama unfold? What kind of story is this? Well, the story, the drama is that our biggest problem is sin. Our biggest problem is this thing that's broken in our hearts. It's not politics. That's not our biggest problem. Is politics a problem? Well, yeah, it's a problem. But it's not our root problem, right? Is education a problem? Yeah, education's a problem, but that's not our root problem. Our root problem is sin. We have a lot of warriors in our city, right? And I thank God for you. Romans 13 will actually applaud you and say that you are used by God to accomplish justice in the world. So God's not anti-warrior. God's not against warriors or policemen, but he's saying there's a, a bigger fight that needs to take place, right? There's a deeper fight, and that is the fight against sin. So again, how is this drama going to unfold? How, in what way, will Israel be saved? 
This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's what he says in verse 27. So my question for you, first of all, is have you come to terms with the drama that God is telling? Do you recognize that it's sinners around your sin and my sin and our need for a warrior that would defeat sin? Who would take our sins upon the cross and who would give us his perfect record of righteousness? Who would die the death that we deserved, but who would rise from the dead, proving that he is the warrior that vanquished sin and death? His resurrection is the thing that certifies him. If you read the book of Acts, continually the apostles were preaching Jesus, saying the resurrection is what shows that he's the warrior we've been looking for. The resurrection, that's the thing we look to that says he defeated sin and death. Do you recognize your root problem? Or do you think, really it's politics, really it's education, really it's we just need to kind of have our our lives in order, we need more self-help books, that's really what's going to clean things up. Now, again, all these things can be a blessing. These can be secondary fights that God calls us into, right? But there's this ultimate under-the-surface fight that we need to deal with. What's the, what's the story you're telling? What's the drama that you're telling? Are you wanting to take back over from God and say, no, God, I don't like how you're telling the story. Let me tell it my way. One of the things I've recognized over the years as a preacher is, and this probably varies, you know, y'all are probably all different like this. Some people tend to be better at telling detailed stories and how they unfold Uh, linearly, right? Like in order. Um, And then other people are better at taking complicated things and summarizing them and boiling them down to just a few words. I'm that second person, right? Like it's easier for me to take a mess and boil it down to a few words, which means it's hard for me to tell a story and let all the pieces unfold. And this is a story that God is telling and it takes time, right? If you're one of those people that tells detailed stories and you take your time, Inside, I'm like, okay, what's the end? What's the end, right? Like, I'm, I want to, like, tell the punchline and spoil it. But that God is telling a story, and it's unfolding in time. It's a drama. And it involves some difficulty on our part and on other people's parts. And we don't always like the ups and the downs of every story that we're a part of, do we? Then after the fact, it makes a great story. And so we need to submit to the drama that God is telling. Knowing that our, our root problem is sin... I want to challenge you to find your place in that drama. What are, what are good ways to, to deal with this in our life? I think one of the ways is for us to actually begin learning the story, right? As modern people, we think that we get to tell the story, we get to write the story, we get to make it whatever we want to make it to be. It's fascinating when you hear people talk about their faith as if it's something that they can construct. I would not want to believe in a God that I could build myself, right? I want my God to be God and to be outside of me. And that's the kind of story we have in the Bible. We don't always like it, but I encourage you to go and and read it, get to know the story, to study it for yourself. Will you have questions about the story? Yes. Will there be difficulties you'll run into? Yes. But I, I encourage you to study it and get to know it for yourself. God's big enough that he can handle your confusion, your difficulties. As we think about the story and how it unfolds in the the central part that sin plays. I was just reminded this week of a book that I've read that I would want to recommend to you. As you consider reading your Bible, as you consider studying your Bible with other people, it's called Tempted and Tried. Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. Fantastic book, and it deals with temptation and how sin is the real battle we're fighting and how Jesus is the real warrior who defeated sin and death for us. 
I just saw Russell Moore at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and so that kind of triggered it in my mind. He was giving a talk where, where a lot of it overlapped with what he wrote in this book. I was like, oh yeah, this is great. I want to recommend that book to you. But more than that, more than a specific book, I just want to recommend to you doing the hard work of learning the drama. Learning the story so that you can understand your place in the story. We offer Bible studies all the time. We have new opportunities for you to grow, for you to understand who you are and the place that you play in the story. I encourage you to take those next steps. Come to church, hear us teach the word, but get into a Bible study with another woman or another man where you can begin wrestling through these details of how God wants you to obey your role in the drama personally. The next thing that I want us to see is the riches of mercy. The riches of mercy, we see this in verses 28 through 32. Verse 28 says, As regards the gospel, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So Paul's admitting, yeah, they really are outsiders if they reject Jesus. So again, we're not saying that Jews are saved by their Jewness. They're not saved automatically by being Israelites. There is a sense in which they are outsiders, enemies, according to the good news of who Jesus is. You can't come into the people of God apart from trusting in who Jesus is. But there is still a special place. There's an honor we should give to them as God's Old Testament people because he's made all these promises to work through them. So that's the tension we struggle with, right? We want to go to one extreme or the other, and Paul's trying to encourage us to hold this tension together. Yes, you can't be saved apart from Jesus, but there's a special place that God has for the Jews, and we want to honor that and respect that. He says, regarding election, regarding choosing, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's keeping those promises. And there are still significant things that are going to happen. And so where we struggle, I mentioned this last week, is God speaks in terms of tribes and God speaks in terms of individuals. As individuals, you cannot be saved as an individual apart from Jesus. But does God work with nations and tribes and people groups? Yeah, and he's saying there's still a lot of work he's going to do with the nation, with the people group of Israel. Do we know all the answers to that? No. And I wouldn't recommend getting your answers from popular movies like Left Behind, right? They can be entertaining, but I don't know that they get all the details right. But we would still say, I do think there's a future. There's a, there's a future here for Israel. And this is what he says here. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let me read that sentence again. I think that's a good summary sentence here. He says, verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what does that mean? He's saying all kinds of people, people with different colors of skin, people with different educational backgrounds, people that are Jews, people that are non-Jews, we, we all have a disobedience problem. Going again, back to where he was earlier, the sin issue. We all have a disobedience problem, and the solution to that is mercy. The solution is never, man, sorry you weren't born a Jew, or man, it's too bad you weren't born in America, right? That's never the solution. The solution is we're all given over to disobedience so that God can show mercy on all of us. That, that's the solution, is, is God's mercy. So there are these great riches in mercy, and you won't see the riches of God's mercy unless you recognize your own disobedience. So again, do you as a person 
drift into this thinking, well, I'm really, I'm better than those other people and, and they might need to get their stuff together, but I've gotten my stuff together. When you drift into that, you're rejecting God's mercy. You're saying, I'm not really saved by God's mercy. I'm just saved by having my stuff together, by being a better person, by being more disciplined, by having more money, by obeying the law more. And we have to remember that because God has shown mercy to us, that is why we now pursue obedience. We do not pursue obedience in order to earn his mercy. Definitionally, that is not mercy. That is not grace. Grace is not grace if you've earned it. It's wages. Paul said earlier that if you want wages, well, the wages that we've earned is death through our sin. But if you want grace, if you want mercy, well, that's something that God gives you and you don't deserve. And so anyone that knows God starts with disobedience. I've sinned. I need forgiveness. And so God's grace is shown to those of us who have disobeyed. Those of us who think we've never disobeyed, we don't get mercy. We get judgment. So that's my challenge to you this morning is where, where do you place yourself? Who, who do you think you are? Do you think you're the obedient one that doesn't really need mercy? Too bad for those other people that need mercy. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And what he means is all are actually sick. All are actually disobedient. I have a picture here of the Old Testament Ark. I'm thankful to, uh, is that Spielberg or George Lucas? I don't know who did this movie. But anyway, it's uh, Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark here. Now, I don't know that that's exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looks like, but I just wanted to give you a, a bit of a representation. At the center of Old Testament worship, these people who had received the promises of God, at the center of it was the Ten Commandments in a golden box. Just to kind of summarize for you, God's law stored in a golden box. And this was at the center of their worship geographically as well. They had this Holy of Holies, which was the kind of centermost part of the tabernacle or the temple later on where they worshiped. There was an outer ring, and then there was an outer ring from that, and an outer ring from that, and those all symbolize, those rings within rings, symbolize getting closer and closer to the holiness of God. And what was at the center of the holiness of God? Well, it was guarded by these angels, and you had the law. So the law represents God's perfect purity and righteousness. So there at the center, you've got God's righteousness and his holiness and his law. And then you've got, layered on top of that, you've got the sacrificial system, right? And this sacrificial system is saying that a death needs to occur to pay for your rejection of that law. So you better be careful about approaching the holiness of God apart from a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice. So you might read the Old Testament. Sometimes I read the Old Testament. You know, my kids and I at breakfast were like, man, that was weird. I just read this today. You know, there's some things because of our cultural distance that make it difficult for us. But I think this helps us to recognize verse 32 is a great summary verse. We've all been given over to disobedience so that we can all receive mercy. That the ultimate problem is we don't keep the law and a sacrifice needs to be made so that we can come into the presence of God. And that is most clearly portrayed in Jesus, right? The cross knocks that out of the park, clarifying for us that the ultimate sacrifice has been made by God himself. So as you think about obedience and disobedience in your life, I want you to have this picture, this image of God has come to you in mercy and forgiven your disobedience. And God is now with you and says, let's work on that disobedience together. Let's work on that sin together. I don't want you to think, I 
will obey my way to God because you will never get there. I want you to see that you've been consigned to disobedience and God mercied himself to you through the cross. He took your disobedience. He flung it as far as east is from the west. So God is now with you through Christ. And working on disobedience, you do as a result of the mercy that he's shown you. So do I want you to do right things and keep the law? Yes. Paul keeps saying, I'm not saying don't keep the law. I'm saying don't keep the law in order to earn God's love. Keep the law because you've got God's love. Because he's come to you in mercy in Christ. That's what he's describing here. That's what he's asking us to play out. So should you read the Old Testament? It's scary. It's confusing. Yes, but read it knowing... Verse 32, God's consigned all the disobedience so that he can give mercy to all. And that's, what it's, that's the picture it's trying to paint to us again and again and again through all the weird rituals and sacrifices. Um, I would also encourage you to, to get involved with another brother or sister where you can learn this together. Find a, a friend that can remind you of this reality. We do small groups. We do Bible studies. We do classes. You don't have to wait for those. You can just grab a brother Grab a sister and say, hey, let's meet together for coffee. Same gender, especially if you're married, right? But grab a friend and say, let's, let's meet for coffee. Let's pray together. Let's try to work on this thing. Let's try to remember that God's shown mercy to us, and we're going to then obey because of the mercy he's shown to us in our disobedience. And begin centering yourself on the gospel with another brother or sister. Begin working on that together, confessing your need of Jesus and confessing the provision that God has given us in Jesus. It's the next step that we all need to take. The last thing we want to see is the riches of worship. The riches of worship. Uh, here Paul just kind of explodes into worship in verses 33 through 36. This is the end of this section. So again, if I could just frame chapters 9, 10, and 11. We have difficult doctrines here, election and choosing, some of these difficult things that we've seen. Paul started at the beginning in chapter 9 saying, I wish that I could be cut off I wish that I could be cut off so that my brothers and sisters would be saved. So Paul starts off with this zeal to see his brothers and sisters saved. And now he ends with this worship. So just keep that in mind. This most difficult doctrines in the book of Romans are sandwiched with Paul saying, I love my brothers and sisters, this zeal for them. And that it ends with this worship of God is amazing, right? So if you like the doctrines of election and you don't start with wanting to die for people and end with worship, you're doing it wrong. Okay, I keep trying to push my brothers and sisters who, who lean Calvinistic here, right? Like if you love election and you love choosing, but you don't love people, you don't understand the doctrine. And if you love election and you love choosing, you love predestination, but you're not praising God and humbled by it, again, you're doing it wrong. That, that's where these doctrines in 9, 10, 11 should drive us. So here he is, he's coming to worship. Verse 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That just means we don't understand him, okay? Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. God deserves glory. This is a worship section. The, the ending word, the ending phrase there is to him belongs to glory. Glory literally means weight, or strength, And so what you're saying when you glorify God is you're saying, God is the one who's strong. God is the one who's big. I'm small and God is weighty. That's what you're saying when you give glory to God. And this is pushing us that direction, saying he's the one that deserves 
all the glory. Ancient confessions of the Puritan church, the Westminster Confession and also the Second London Baptist Confession both start off with this concept of what is the chief end or the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so our, our purpose in life is, is to do this, to worship Him. The English word worship is uh, from ascribing worth to someone or something. So when we worship, we're saying God is worthy. When we glorify God, we're saying God is big. God is weighty. How, how do we do that? Well, we, we do that by singing, right? That's like the obvious way we think of if you're in a church building and we just sang some songs, you're like, yeah, we sing. We say with our voices that God is great. How else do we do it? Next week in Romans chapter 12, he's going to say all of your life should be doing that. You don't just do it with your words. You do it with your life. It's both and. It's not one or the other. It's not like one's more important. You do both. So continually in everything we do, we say God is great. God is awesome. He's so much bigger than me. He's so incredibly, so wonderful. Are you saying that with your life? Look back at this uh, part where he's talking about how we don't understand in verse 34, who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Would y'all argue that if anybody understands God, it's the Apostle Paul, maybe? I mean, after Jesus, right? You know, that's a different story. So regular human being, probably Paul understands God. And where does Paul go after he's taught all this stuff? He's like, man, I don't understand him. He's so much bigger than me. He's so incredible. And what else does he say in verse 35? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's Father's Day. I was thinking about how this works on Father's Day, right? There's this famous quote that C.S. Lewis has. And I don't remember which book he says this in, but there's a rock band that, that stole this quote for their name, Sixpence None the Richer. Have you ever heard about this old 90s band? Um, the idea is that a little child asks for sixpence, which is like British money, I guess. He asks for money from dad so that he can buy a gift for dad. And he says, the dad still appreciates the gift, but the father is sixpence, none the richer, right? Like he's not any richer. He paid for the gift that his child bought for him. That's basically what we do when we worship God. John Piper talks about this, the debtor's ethic. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. We shouldn't, again, try to obey our way to God. We shouldn't try to pay off the debt and think every good and religious thing I do is paying back the debt. Because Piper says every, every step you take, you're going deeper and deeper in debt to God's grace. Everything you do is a result of his grace. Who can repay God? Everything we give to him is something he's given to us. I've seen about that for Father's Day today. I'm, I'm taking my family out to eat for Father's Day, right? <laughs> who's, who's paying for that? Well, I'm I'm paying for my kids to take me out to Father's Day today. (laughs) But who really is paying? Well, Grace Bible Church is paying me. I get my salary from you. Thank you very much. Thank you for paying for my Father's Day. And who really paid you to pay me? Well, your job paid you to pay me. The government, who paid the government? Well, the taxpayers paid. uh, And where did they get their money? Well, they got their money from someone that bought, you know, bread from them at their bakery so they could pay taxes, so they could pay the soldiers, so the soldiers could pay the church, so the church could pay me, so that I could pay my kids to take me out to lunch today, right? And you could just keep, I could keep going for like half an hour, right? And ultimately we have to come back to, you know what? It all goes back to God. He's a source of all good. So we ascribe worth to him. We ascribe worth to him in everything that we do. When you use your gifts, don't, don't ever think that it's your gift. Say, this is a gift that God gave to me that I'm using for his glory. 
you sing, you sing for his glory. If you soldier, you soldier for God's glory. If you teach, you teach for God's glory. If you bake, you bake for God's glory. If you change diapers, you change diapers for God's glory, right? Even that moment in time is a gift that he's given to you to spend for him. And so we have to, we have to see that in everything that we do. This is, God gave this to me today and I'm offering it back to him. I'm not offering it to win a spot in his kingdom. He gave me that spot by his mercy. I'm offering it because God is good. I want to honor him with all of my life. So we think of the riches that God offers to us. I wanted to end with 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is a great worship and giving verse in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It lays out the gospel-centered concept of how we give, how we worship. One of the ways that we worship is singing. One of the ways that we worship is living our daily life in honor of God. One of the ways that we worship is giving of our material needs to serve others. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So giving to the church. Why do you give to the church? Because the pastor says God will bless you more if you give to the No, because Jesus gave to you. When you do your job with excellence, why do you do your job with excellence? Because Jesus spent all of his excellence on you. He gave everything he had for you. Why do you honor God with your words? Because Jesus came after you to speak words of grace and forgiveness into your life. Everything that you do, you do because he became poor for us so that we could become rich. He offers the riches of the world to us in Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll respond together in worship. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. We declare together that we recognize that we cannot spend ourselves into your presence. We cannot obey our way into your presence. We cannot earn our way into your presence. But you spent your way to us. You gave yourself away on the cross. You died the death that we deserved to give us the life that we don't deserve, but we we receive it and we give praise to you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for gifting us. We thank you for giving us a calling. We thank you for giving us a neighborhood. We thank you for giving us a time to live in. And we pray that as we live out our role in this drama, that we would offer it up to you as the one who is worthy of all praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.